Hello and welcome to The Two View. This is the cutting edge educational interactive show for nurse practitioners and PAs in emergency medicine and urgent care. My name is PA Mike Sharma. I'm a practicing emergency medicine PA from Dallas, Texas, and I am here with my co-host, nurse practitioner Martha Roberts. We are both fresh off vacations. We are bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and ready to bring you the latest and greatest. My family just got back off from some time in the woods of Oklahoma, so I'm rocking my flannels right now. Martha, are you still shaking a sand off of uh, Hawaii off your sandals? Hey, Mike. Good to see you. Always good to connect with you. I definitely came back with a nice tan, but uh, it's fading. Um, but you know, speaking of connections that we've had all over uh, our travels here, we've had an absolute blast in Maui. Doctors Rick Bucata, David Glasser, Ken Milne, and Jillian Schmidt, our ASEP president, nice. were all lecturing to a modest group of physicians, um, and some NPs and PAs were in the group as well, for our acute care series course that CCME puts on. The day is great. For anyone in the field, basically, you come to one of these lectures and we go over all the latest evidence-based practice guidelines for pretty much every topic that, that we see in the emergency department, I feel like. We go over some review guides, lots of papers. I learned a lot, got me interested in formal research again. And the mornings, you basically have lecture, the afternoons you have off, and then they always put one day off on Wednesday so you can actually have a real vacation. It's a nice setup. Jim Roberts, Mel Herbert, they made oh, guest wow. appearances. It was really fun to see them all. Well, speaking of upcoming courses, I was really happy to get that email that I know you love to see every year. Dr. Diana Birnbaumer asking us for availability for the Summer Emergency Medicine Boot Camps. That's right. It's time to start getting ready for some summer fun in Vegas. So it's July 28th through 31st for our original boot camp. It's the end of July. And then for you more experienced practitioners, or if August just works better for you, come on out for August 23rd through 25th for the advanced boot camp. Do not let another summer pass you by. Don't get stuck working and like wishing later on, like, oh, if I just put a request in in time, I would have gotten my times off. Pause the podcast. Block off one of those sections, July 28th through 31st or August 23rd to 25th right now. By the way, Martha, I need your help. Katy Perry or Usher? They're both performing in Vegas during the original boot camp. Who do I pick? Um, Honestly, I don't know the answer to that because I want to sit at a slot machine and maybe I'll win another thousand. Remember when that happened? That was really fun. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to do. All right. Well, listen, Katy Perry, if you're listening, Free admission to Katy Perry and a friend to boot camp. I don't know if I can do that, but I did it. So no take backs. Don't worry, Katy. Everyone will be fixated on our amazing lineup of speakers and need to know content. We'll uh, keep it low key and sneak you in the back. <laughs> All right. So let's start with our topics this month. I love this month. We're going to start off by talking about the 2021 AHA ACC guidelines for the evaluation and diagnosis of chest pain. And starting things off light, right? Yeah, okay, no big so. deal. Just chest pain. <laughs> yeah. Then we're going to jump right into a non-traumatic shoulder pain conversation for our adult ER patients with a cool couple of papers. Then I'll discuss the PANRI-LA option for PA certification, And we're just going to wrap a little bit about recertification for PAs and nurse practitioners in general, kind of pros, cons. And then finally, Martha, you're going to close us out by discussing a brief case on altered mental status, and as promised last episode, shrooms. In fact, you're going to give us a little PowerPoint as we go along, right? You've got a great talk on the, the mushrooms. 
Yeah, Mike, it's it's going to be an interactive. We like to make this podcast a little interactive, so I'm ready for some fun to try and stump you as well. Uh, yeah, and the episode will be in our YouTube link, so you can watch that one if you want to listen um, as well. We'll make it pretty clear, the slides. Uh, I've actually been doing a lot of reading about how to educate online since I've been doing a lot of that, and we'll talk about a book club that I've been involved with at the very end for Something Sweet. Oh, very good. And I'll be talking about Evusheld, kind of like the, the little brother of uh, COVID therapeutics we haven't really talked about yet. Well, listen, while we were sleeping off our Thanksgiving turkey hangovers or doing some Black Friday shopping last year, there was a huge clinical practice guideline that dropped in late November 2021 from a joint committee of the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association on the evaluation and diagnosis of chest pain. I'm not kidding. It's huge. It's like 50 pages plus. And I think it did a really good job of reinforcing some of the things that some of the more experienced practitioners do every day, as well as dispelling some myths and incorporating some of the new tech that is becoming more widely available in different EDs. Well, this is the first ever guideline released by these organizations that focuses solely on the evaluation and diagnosis of chest pain, in addition to the ACC and the AHA quarterbacking these guidelines. The writing committee also involved representation from the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, SAEM. The draft guidelines were reviewed by nominees from the American College of Emergency Physicians, ASAP, and the final product was endorsed by SAEM, among other organizations. Really important to have EM representation in guidelines like this. Yeah, because they're coming to us for chest pain and not going to cardiology until later. So we got to have our buy-in, and we do. These guidelines are by no means where our knowledge should stop, but they're a great baseline for someone getting started. And they are the official policy of the ACC and the AHA. So they're kind of nice to pull out like a trump card. If someone's questioning why you're doing something in the guidelines, you can say, hey, look, they're in these guidelines, okay? And chest pain is the second most common reason for adults to present to the ED. I think there was some stat about, you know, one in 30 patients is an ED patient. So basically every shift you're going to see a chest pain patient. Uh, we're not going to go through all 50 plus pages. Some of them are not as high yield for our practice. We'll hit the high nights though. No, I, actually, Mike, I want to go through all 50 pages. Okay, so, let's go. Yep. Let's get started. All right. All right. Uh, no, actually, I really just want to start. There's a really cute graphic that guideline committees created here to sum up their take-home messages. And we'll have that graphic in the links in the guidelines in our show notes that we cover on our website, which is two, the number two, twoview.fireside.fm, right? And the graphic spells out, chest pains mm. with each letter of chest pains signifying an important take-home message cute well the first c well i guess the only c in chest pains hence for chest pain and how it means more than pain in the chest and this can be pressure tightness discomfort it may mean those things in the shoulders the arms the neck even the jaw back or upper abdomen and they should be considered anginal equivalents if the rest of the story matches up. We, we've all had those patients write, uh, Hi, Mr. Smith, this says you're having some chest pain. Uh, oh, I'm not having chest pain. Oh, uh, you're not? No, it's, it's chest discomfort. And you get like corrected every single time you say the, the P word of pain. So, so don't anchor yourself to, to the pain word of chest pain. You know, most commonly... Anginal or ischemic chest pain. That's what we're talking about, right? So blood flow not getting to the heart muscle. This pain builds in intensity over a few minutes. It's a visceral type of pain, so it's kind of vague in its location. 
And physical exertion and emotional stress, uh, we talked about SCAD in our last podcast, right? So don't discount emotional stress and causing life-threatening pathology. These are often common triggers. Right. You know, there are papers that looked at actual words that patients have used to describe chest pain here. A tingling, a pressure. I feel like there's an elephant on my chest. Um, an irk, an itch. Uh, I mean, all kinds of words. Um it, it just doesn't feel right. And I think those are interesting studies as well and what yeah. went on to actually be ACS. All right. So the H here in chest pains is high-sensitivity troponin, the, the preferred biomarker and most accurate for detection and exclusion. The point that they say adding CKMB and myoglobin in the evaluation of patient with chest pains is, quote, not beneficial. It is a little trickier to evaluate high-sensitivity troponins because they are so sensitive. I plan on going over this more in a future podcast, but lots of conditions can cause elevation of high-sensitivity troponin, and we can't uh, basically tie any high-sensitivity troponin elevation to acute coronary syndrome. And Mike, you know, just reword that for me just a moment here because that didn't sound quite right. Yeah, so basically what I'm saying is that um, – just because your patient has some degree of high sensitivity troponin elevation, it doesn't automatically mean that they have acute coronary syndrome. You know, we're used to the regular troponins, and we, we commonly think of like, oh, well, you know, less than 0 0.02, I suppose, is be our like our undetectable. And then we go over 0 0.02, possibly detectable. Well, you know, when you're talking about high sensitivity troponin, it's like detecting levels of troponin elevation, like they're, they're 0. 0.00002. Like it's a full three decimal points smaller in the amount of elevation that we we're detecting. It's not a like super easy math calculation. It's not a perfect math calculation here, but you can understand hopefully that like we're looking for just the most minuscule bumps in troponin. And we know that troponin can be elevated in a lot of conditions beyond having a myocardial infarction. So in, in this this you know, lab test where we're looking for high sensitivity, we're looking for the, even just a whiff of troponinemia here. Don't get so uh, locked into being, oh my gosh, their, their trope is bumped, high sensitivity trope. It's got to be ACS. Take a second back, consider the patient presentation as always, and figure out what the right thing to do is here. Yeah, good point. That was a good way to sort of rephrase this and recap it. It's still important to consider, though, that it can take three hours for even high-sensitivity troponins to be elevated after the onset of ACS. The good news is that if the patient shows up three hours after the onset of chest pain suggested of ACS, a normal EKG in a single um, high-sensitivity troponin below the limit of detection is reasonable. I'm going to say, quoting here, reasonable to exclude myocardial injury. Although, I will always say the original studies all the original studies on these troponins were um, based on uh, two troponins. Two troponins were done. Mm -hmm. Yep. So. Totally true. Yep. Okay. E of chest pains is early care. Early care for acute symptoms. You know, we may not have any control over how soon someone comes into the ED, but number one, if we're keeping an eye on the department as a whole, and that includes our waiting room more and more nowadays, making sure those chest pain patients get prioritized in who gets triaged next is super important. Also may come into play if you're discharging someone. Like, hey, you got kind of this vague chest pain, safe to discharge you. But if it comes back, don't just lollygag in here. Don't drive yourself. Have somebody drive you or call 911 because 
scary stat from the paper guidelines here, one out of 300 patients with chest pain transported to the ED by private vehicle suffers a cardiac arrest en route. So that's the last thing you want is to be driving on the freeway and all of a sudden someone's car is veering off the road because they just had a, a cardiac arrest. You know, it's going to be hard to do a trauma code and a, a STEMI code on this patient if, if they, they fall out while they're driving their car. So, so let them know how important that is to take it seriously, their drive back to the ED. Shoot, that really makes me feel like that's going to be me, honestly. Because <laughs> you know what? No, I'm just going to die at home. I'm just okay. not going to go. Exactly. Just put in your uh, advanced directives and uh, there you go. <laughs> By the way, before we get into the S and the T and then and then the uh, pains part of this acronym, I was just recently planning my last will and testament as well as my power of attorney. And I will tell you, this is a super complicated, depressing thing to do. But I can't tell you how important it is to plan what your wishes are for when you die. Meaning, do you want to be on a ventilator? Do you want nutrition? Do you want IV fluids? All these things. Maybe spend some time thinking about it. Not a lot of time, just some time thinking about it. And since we're talking about really, you know, dying from acute coronary syndrome here, not that, that uh, you know, you're going to die tomorrow, um, although statistically one of you might. Um I would say put this uh, plan in motion. So that was just a total side note. All right, let's move on uh, to the rest of the part of our acronym here. I'm going to talk about the S and the T of the chest. The S basically share, shared decision-making and clinically stable patients. That's very straightforward. The T, testing, not routinely needed in low-risk patients. So don't need to uh, further emergently test for coronary artery disease in low-risk patients. This can be based on high-sensitivity troponin or on a clinical decision pathway. The guidelines say that we should always, okay, quote, always, my eyebrows go up here whenever I see that word in a medical document, we should always consider previous test results after ACS is acutely ruled out. If there was no change um, in symptom frequency or stability at a new visit, a normal coronary angiogram or a heart cath with no stenosis of plaque are considered by these guidelines as having a warranty period of two years. Don't you just love that? Um, wouldn't it be great if someone could call you on the phone and say, uh, your heart warranty is about to run out. You need to renew it. Right, a, normal, exactly. <laughs> a normal stress test, a normal stress test given adequate stress has a warranty period of one year. Yeah, I, I love the warranty period. Like they, they use that in the guidelines here. I've never heard of that in terms of this, but it makes sense. It's a great way to think about it, right? Um, pathways. Use clinical decision pathways that your department has agreed upon here. The heart score is probably the one that we're all most uh, you know, used to using, but there are many other ones, including modified heart scores, incorporating high-sensitivity troponins. So look for those. All right, the A accompanying uh, myth busted. All right, so chest pain is the dominant symptom in women in acute coronary syndrome. These uh, guidelines, um, the guidelines cite multiple studies that looked at the differences in presentation between the sexes like Promise, Virgo, Young MI, and Hermes, and they suggest that chest pain with ACS occurs as frequently in women as it does in men. Thank you very much. However, women may be more likely to present with three plus additional accompanying symptoms like nausea or dyspnea or, you know, there's lots of other things that they looked at in some of these other studies. Um, I identify. Okay. 
Well, let's talk about this one. Identify patients most likely to benefit from further testing. Who are they? Recent coronary CTA or other testing may be better for connecting their cardiologist and arranging for outpatient follow-up instead of readmitting them just because they fit into a certain pathway. We'll talk more about this and uh, coronary CT angiogram in a second. N is non-cardiac. So I have never used the phrase atypical chest pain in my charts because it's like what we see atypical presentations of bad disease all the time. So what does it mean to say atypical chest pain? So the guidelines say use non-cardiac chest pain if you think that the thing is going on that is non-cardiac related here. You know, going back to when the term atypical was initially brought into the literature here at the practice, it was initially meant to signify angina without typical chest symptoms. But that's not how I see it used. I see it used in a lot of different ways, that word atypical. So, you know, what makes a pain non-cardiac in the terms of the guidelines here? So they say that sharp, fleeting, shifting around the chest, pleuritic, and positional pains. These kinds of pains are all considered low probability of being ischemic chest pain. Now, it doesn't mean it's something uh, not important. It could be something really bad. It's just not likely to be ischemic, and it should point you towards other diagnoses more strongly, perhaps. Now, Mike, did they use the word weird in there? Uh, weird, oogie, I think was also used, or whoa, or la la. Yeah, all these words were definitely used in these formal guidelines here. No, I, weird was my my um, interjection there. And the the S of chest pains. Structured risk assessment. Structured assessment should be used. Now, this sounds like the same thing as using a clinical decision pathway, but it's slightly different. You know, not all chest pain patients need a heart score. I mean, you probably have to put one in because of your work coding rules and stuff. So just fill in one of the after here. But, but clinically, not every patient needs to be put into a heart score pathway. Not all chest pain patients need to be put through PE risk stratification, formally like a Wells scoring or a PER criteria. Not all chest and back pain patients need a CT angiogram of their chest to look for aortic syndrome. It's important to have some sort of easily reproducible, evidence-based way to assess pretest risk of the conditions you're concerned about before you know shoving a round peg and potentially a square hole of one pathway or another. The AHA and the ACC are clear that using a structured pre-test risk assessment is going to reduce cost and unnecessary testing. Yeah, and we talk about unnecessary testing in our second segment today in regards to shoulder pain, um, in which, you know, shoulder pain can certainly make you think, ooh, is this acute coronary syndrome? You know, you want to investigate that a little further. Um, but I digress. We'll talk about that in a second. A couple more tidbits. An initial normal EKG does not exclude ACS. Patients with an initial normal EKG should have a repeat EKG if symptoms are ongoing until other diagnostic testing rules out, uh, uh, until the other, excuse me, until other diagnostic testing will rule out um, acute coronary syndrome. Again, this is a policy of the ACC and the AHA. Amal Matu, Dr. Amal Matu, one of the instructors at our heart course and old friend of mine, good guy, um, he... Uh, if you can get a chance to come and hear him lecture, it's great. He's a big advocate of serial EKGs. I've included an interesting link here at our uh, liner notes and on our website at a case reported um, to Ken Grauer, MD, who is a great resource for EKG teaching that ended in a bad outcome after a patient was 
recommended for a heart cath decline and passed away two days later. So each individual EKG is essentially normal, but there is enough change between them that it's concerning. We're going to have to keep looking at those serial EKGs. Yeah, the, the dynamic testing, dynamic changes with EKGs is sometimes more important than just is it normal or not. Let's talk about that coronary CT angiogram that we mentioned here. Okay, so this is going to be uh, like an interesting up-and-coming way to test somebody who is at moderate risk for a major adverse coronary event in the ED setting, but you no, know, doesn't have any history of CAD, and you could discharge them safely, being moderate risk, no history of CAD with a clean coronary CT angiogram. The guideline site the CATCH trial, and the PROSPECT trial, both of them suggest no difference in death, repeat ED visits, or acute coronary syndrome over months of follow-up. And people evaluated in this uh, criteria setting, you know, again, moderate risk for, uh, you know, CAD, moderate risk for ACS, no history of it, no change in outcomes over months in people evaluated by coronary CT angiogram versus admission for that stress testing. Okay, so one less hospital bed occupied safely, which is great. Let's talk about chest pain choice. This is a, you know, we talk about shared decision making. Well, sometimes it's hard to use your words good, like I often find in this podcast here, okay? So sometimes having a little graphical aid is helpful. Chest pain choice is a graphical decision aid you can kind of print out or pull up on your phone that can be helpful in communicating risk and having good informed shared decision making. We're going to include a link to that as well in our show notes. Chest pain choice. Next, transthoracic echocardiogram, so ultrasound through the chest wall, is the primary tool to diagnose things like pericardial fusion, aortic dissection, right ventricular dysfunction that could hit to PE, the mechanical complications of MI. So you have a heart attack and the heart beats differently. What are the mechanical complications there? They can find cardiac masses, clots on the move, endocarditis. We can assess volume status, pulmonary hypertension, valvular stenosis, regurgitation, ultrasound, if you haven't heard, is big nowadays in emergency medicine. And we teach a course on ultrasound at the Center for Medical Education. It's before, I believe, the original boot camp course. So the July yes. course, right? So if you're interested in getting smarter ultrasound, look that up. My last little, you know, Mike's chest pain tidbits here beyond the chest pains mnemonic here. Consider GI as a cause of recurrent acute chest pain if, you know, they've already kind of gone down the whole cardiac and pulmonary um, evaluation pathways. This is interesting. 10 to 20% of chest pain patients have a GI cause. That's a big chunk, okay? If someone has some more concerning symptoms like dysphagia, odynophagia, that's pain with swallowing, GI bleeding, like unexplained iron deficiency anemia, weight loss is never a good thing. Like, I don't know why I've dropped 20 pounds this month, right? Never a good thing to hear unless, uh, well, it's never a good thing. We'll just say, put it that way here, okay? <laughs> Recurrent vomiting, like these people should probably be seen sooner, like in the next one or two weeks at GI. Otherwise, you could try these people on some sort of empiric acid suppression therapy, famotidine, my personal and professional favorite here, and say, hey, follow up with your primary care doctor. They may want to send you off to GI specialist if that uh, H2RI is not working very well for you. All good tips. Uh, I would say that one of my favorite 
favorite things that happen is when people tell me about their their cases and I'm like, wait, what? What happened? That is nuts. Oh my goodness. What'd you do and how'd you find it? So some of the most recent uh, top three weird chest pain cases I've had recently, just throwing them out there just for fun. I had a 45-year-old that told the triage nurse that he had chest pain. They just pulled that gown down just a little just to maintain privacy, you know, to do their EKG pulled it back up didn't see the giant rash so when I undressed him and saw that I was like oh okay shingles rash right there then I had a 28 year old chest pain who had completely normal vital signs looked great she just had this chest pain with deep breathing her only risk factor for PE with birth control was birth control and by golly we scanned her and she had a big PE Mm. wow how young people can compensate finally a 90 year old who swallowed their dentures awesome the end what do you do serial EKGs components for for that 90 year old as well or <laughs> figure something else out in that one okay, hopefully so all right well look in the interest of space repetition here are those top 10 tips again not for you to memorize but just to incorporate more broadly into your practice again c chest pain means more than pain in the chest h high sensitivity troponin is the preferred biomarker and most accurate for detection and exclusion E is early care. Get early care for those acute symptoms. Don't just drive yourself necessarily. S is share. Share decision-making should be used. Consider that chest pain choice uh, graphical aid. T is testing. Not routinely needed to admit and stress test our low-risk patients or even do a lot of heart testing in the ED for our low risk of ACS patients and CAD patients here. Pathways. Use clinical decision pathways like the heart score. Use them. Use ones that your department has agreed upon as the way that your department is going to practice caring for chest pain. A, accompanied. Women present with chest pain just as much as men do, but they may be more likely to present with accompanying symptoms like nausea or shortness of breath. I is, again, identify. Identify those patients most likely to benefit from further testing or if they've already got previous testing and their warranty is not expired, so to speak. Maybe an outpatient follow-up is best. N is non-cardiac. Don't say atypical chest pain. Say non-cardiac. And S is a structured risk assessment, which you should use before you smash somebody through the Wells and Perk scoring or the heart score if they shouldn't be there. Smashing. (laughs) All right. Segment two. Let's move on. This topic is something that many of us say in the ER uh, every day. It's non-traumatic shoulder pain in the adult patient. And I'm really focusing on adult patients over 18 here. So anything that I talk about is considered for the adult patient. I don't want to get into peds orthopedics today in any way, shape, or form, nor do I want to get into weird presentations of shoulder pain in the young child. But we could do that as a future podcast topic. There are a number of ways that you can approach this particular patient, the adult patient with non-traumatic shoulder pain. Uh, But here's a great way to organize your thoughts and plan uh, what you want to do with this patient. And and coming hot off of this chest pain conversation, I think it's a great thing to integrate sort of on the opposite end because certainly we talked about how shoulder pain or referred shoulder pain or upper chest pain can certainly be an indicator of acute coronary syndrome or something else, you know. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, We kind of need to just break this down in a way that will make it easy for us to understand and approach. The, The best way to approach non-traumatic shoulder pain is to do it in digestible bites and categories. When I'm teaching this to students, I usually draw a picture or a Venn diagram, and I like to Mm. start thinking about musculoskeletal cases, including prior trauma, strain, sprain, arthritis, prior injuries, 
Um, also, does this patient have neck pain, which changes things a little bit, right? And then I consider infection. Like, do I look for rash, redness, swelling? I ask about IV drug use. And then I consider these red flag or referred symptoms, such as acute coronary syndrome, MI, dissection, cholecystitis, cholecystitis, or something else. Neurological is always in the back of my mind. I don't go immediately there with the shoulder pain unless I'm appreciating some neurological finding or the patient has some sensory changes. The good thing is that shoulder pain and isolation is pretty common and frankly pretty rarely emergent. It can be emergent. Don't miss those cases. Martha listed off a whole bunch of possibly emergent shoulder pains. But if you're using a good focused clinical history and physical exam, you can usually get to a good working diagnosis and management approach for patients presenting with non-traumatic shoulder pain in general practice in your ER without imaging, which can tack on, as we know, you know, half an hour, an hour, two hours, just to get a plain film x-ray of what in atraumatic shoulder pain. You know, in the absence of red flags, imaging has limited benefits and is not likely to influence your near-term management. Yeah, and, and Mike, you really just summed up the whole segment here, but I still want to talk about it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Sorry to step on you there. <laughs> that's fine. But I would say that, uh, you know, there's some things we're going to talk about now. You might be kind of thinking, ugh, shoulder pain, I just don't care. But there's some really interesting information that I, that I want to just kind of convey to you about why this is such a cool thing that you can be good at diagnosing in the emergency department. Um, when imaging is warranted, though, you need to ensure appropriate clinical details are provided, basically to assist with the reason why you did that. So many times overall, it's key to one, treat the pain and have a plan for pain control for this patient. And two, explain to the patient and reassure patients that most episodes of shoulder pain have a favorable outcome. There's a great article in the BMJ from 2005 that tackles shoulder pain in the adult, which we will add in the show notes. I'm going to tease out a few of those tips from the publication as we talk about it here today. The publication notes that the four most common causes of shoulder pain, non-traumatic that is, in primary care are rotator cuff disorders, glenohumeral disorders, AC joint disease, and referred neck pain, okay? Since most patients with acute or chronic non-traumatic shoulder pain still go to the ER for workup and treatment, not their PCP, not an orthopedic, not family practice, we need to be familiar with the treatment. So let's first outline what's important about the patient's history. We spoke a little bit about it already, but the key to knowing whether or not shoulder pain is life-threatening or not is mostly the history. And that's a familiar theme that we're going to repeat throughout here today. And we can ask things like our old carts, right? Onset characteristics and functional impact of the shoulder pain, dominant, non-dominant hand, pain at rest, movement, or both. Is the pain present at night? Does the pain affect your sleeping position? Is there any neck, thoracic, or upper limb pain? And then, of course, any history of trauma, and we may have to ask specific questions about this. Occupation and sporting activities, also a super important question. And are other joints affected? Had this ever happened in a joint before? And this, this uh, journal paper in the BMJ really breaks down the best questions to ask these patients with non-traumatic shoulder pain. Then we can kind of look for more of the wacky and weird stuff. Okay, so the next questions are things like, do you have any sort of systemic symptoms, fever, 
weight loss, um, fatigue, respiratory symptoms, stuff like that. Um, any sort of big medical history, okay? The big ones are kind of our uh, CAD risk factors, okay? So diabetes, high cholesterol, um, stroke, of course, tells you they have bad pipes. Cancer, always a concern here. Any sort of respiratory history, including like, you know, PE or stuff like that. How about GI stuff? Do they have any sort of a gallbladder or liver problems here? Kidney disease, a psoriasis, those are questions to ask about specifically if you're trying to go very specific here. How about any sort of current medications they're on or any history of adverse drug reactions? IV drug use, always very important to ask about here when we're kind of thinking about something more serious. And then are you also having, in addition to your shoulder pain, is there any pain in the chest, the belly, the right upper quadrant of the abdomen, maybe the middle or the lower back? And is there any sort of nausea or vomiting going along with that shoulder pain? Yeah, a focused exam then is really, really key here. And you can glean a lot of information just by physically looking at that patient and having them do a, a couple of exercises and motions for you. And then, of course, if they have a big old surgical scar but said they never had any surgery, they say, oh, yeah, that's when I got shot in the arm when I was 16, right? So um, definitely a ton of information you can glean just by taking their shirt off. So, uh, Mike, what else? What else are we going to do? All right, we'll take, you know, look at them. I think that's a couple of things we've talked about here with your chest pain patient, right? Look at the skin that is affected. Look at the neck, the axilla as well. Look at the chest wall on that side here. Check the range of motion of their neck. Look for any sort of muscle tone issues and bulking issues. Is there any sort of swelling or wasting or deformity? Push, not just kind of generally like, oh, does, does it hurt somewhere in here? Like, be very methodical in your approach here, right? So like, Let's palpate the sternoclavicular joint in particular. Let's look at the AC joint. Let's look at the glenohumeral joint and look for tenderness, swelling, warmth, crepitus in those places here, right? Do a little compare and contrast as far as, you know, things like power, range of motion, how stable, if you can do some ligamentous stability testing of these shoulders. You can check for things like external rotation, see how passively well that you can rotate them out. And do things like a drop arm test or other special testing that can identify things like a rotator cuff tear. Um, you're, we're going to want to also, of course, include adjacent stuff. So next to the shoulder here, you got the heart and the lungs. So go and listen to the heart, listen to the lungs, and see if anything else shakes out of those. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about a case I recently had in a 30-year-old male who is left-hand dominant, left shoulder pain. He signs into the ER at 4 a.m. because he can't sleep. He's got pain. He took Tylenol and his shoulder still hurts. And he was asked all the questions we just reviewed, and the positives included pain with range of motion. That's weird. Like, you know, it's not typical for a 30-year-old to have a serious, like, you know, high morbidity, high mortality shoulder pain problem. But, um, you know, important to ask those questions about, you know, exactly where it is, how long it's been going on for, checking for mobility are really important a 30-year-old. And then, you know, everyone's got their own ways about asking about things like, IV drug use, recreational drug use, don't say like illicit or, uh, you know, or, or illegal. People don't want to admit to that sort of stuff. Okay. So recreational is like a, a party, right? Like, Hey man, like, do you party? You know, like, so, so yeah. So recreational drugs. Okay. How about also prior surgeries and injuries? Uh, you know, that really helps tease out why a 30 year old's rolling in at 4am for shoulder pain. Right. And, you know, he certainly could be a million other things. He could be seeking. He could be doing this. He could be doing that. Maybe he's bored. Maybe he's mentally ill. 
Who knows? Maybe he was beat up. We don't know, but we need to ask him those questions. So after examining the patient, he looks great. Okay. His vital signs are normal. You have this patient all the time. They look awesome. The shoulders look normal. There's no rash. There's no, the patient doesn't have a fever. There's no neurological findings. You notice that he does have significant pain when he rotates the shoulder around and he's a little bit tender when you push on the anterior portion around the shoulder girdle itself. You ask him some questions. He's been doing uh, not that much physical exercise, but he does tell you that he recently did a challenge on Facebook where he did some daily push-ups. Okay, well, I, mean, I feel like we've kind of broken that wide open right there with some good history. Okay, so I'm leaning strongly towards a musculoskeletal cause in this patient. We can probably stop there if he denies every other high-risk issue. Um, you know, it's okay, of course, to perform that physical exam, rule out those life-threatening causes, maybe without doing a shoulder x-ray, labs, EKG, CT, MRI for a patient like this. Yeah, so it was 4 a.m., you know, so me and the doc were hanging out. I discussed the case with the attending, and we kind of were talking about radiographs and non-traumatic shoulder pain. So, you know, no big deal, not that expensive of a test, not that much radiation, but this brings up our our question here. Do we have to get an x-ray in a patient with non-traumatic shoulder pain? Is it necessary and does it glean any useful information or help anyone down the road? So non-traumatic shoulder pain is usually diagnosed, as we said, multiple times here from the medical history and combination of other clinical tests, sometimes physical exam, Um, and conservative treatment is usually most adequate. When diagnostic imaging is required, ultrasound, ultrasound (laughs) should be the first choice. So let's look at a paper from 2020 in the QJM on the International Journal of Medicine that helps figure out the best approach to imaging. The paper actually focused more on the first go-to for imaging the shoulder pain um, issue as a bedside ultrasound, then later MRI as the test of choice. That's not to say that shoulder x-ray is useless. And this is for non-traumatic shoulder pain, right? That's okay, good. All right, non-traumatic. Okay. What they yep. found in that paper as well, and you know a lot of other papers too that corroborate this, is that this this hundred patient study, so like not huge, not small, the most common finding was rotator cuff tears, and amongst the rotator cuff tendons, as you probably know, the supraspinatus, the most common tendon to be involved in our study here. Okay, ultrasound found ninety two patients, and MRI detected ninety six patients with some sort of pathology in the supraspinatus tendon, like, you know, things like tendinosis, tears, calcifications, and other non-rotator cuff-related findings. Again, supraspinatus, most common. You can have some sort of tendinopathy. Of, of the supraspinatus problems, tendinopathy, the most common diagnosis, followed by things like a partial thickness tear, then a full thickness tear of the supraspinatus here. Again, ultrasound can help us get useful clues if you know how to drive that ultrasound probe. In the end, as you heard, MRI had a slightly higher efficacy for both full and partial thickness tears, while ultrasound had a higher efficacy for full thickness tears only. Their study revealed MRI to be a highly sensitive as well as specific technique for differentiation among different shoulder pathologies. Yeah, but I would like to say close runner-up and friend ultrasound, okay? Right, well, I, definitely, I like that. yeah. Yeah, so that leads me to say, um, what will your x-ray show you in a non-traumatic shoulder pain that, that most likely would be a rotator cuff injury? Not much. 
The Mayo Clinic agrees that x-rays, although a rotator cuff tear won't show up on an x-ray, um, can visualize bone spurs and other causes of pain, arthritis, things like that. But how about ultrasound? How about it? This type of test can let us see soft tissues, muscles, tendons. It allows dynamic testing, assessing the structures of the shoulder when they move. You can compare both sides. So why not use it? I mean, really, why not? Right. Well, uh, of course, MRI is the gold standard. It's still the way to go for most referrals, and ortho will probably want to do that. The image is obtained just by all the structures in really great detail. So, you know, I'd say no red flags, uh, the ability to treat their pain adequately, rule out other life-threatening issues, bedside ultrasound, outpatient referral, and non-emergent outpatient MRI would be the way to go over just kind of like doing the x-ray. Because we both know it's like we're probably not going to find anything here. Right. If you're really debating back and forth about an x-ray, get an x-ray. I will say that. Mm -hmm. um, but there are numerous papers on using ultrasound for these injuries. And I think that our trainee needs to get on the ball on this one. So the MD and I, we decided to take a look at the shoulder. We, uh, She was ultrasound trained. Um, and we were able to identify structures in, the, in both shoulders comparing. And our diagnosis was mo most likely uh, a rotator cuff tear. And the patient was referred out without an x-ray, did some pain control. I called him. Uh, I do my own little single case studies here all the time for patients. And he had an outpatient MRI and was set up for PT, and he was plugged in. Nice. Okay. Well, let's talk about what the CMS says about this, okay? Because, you know, they're not necessarily fully on board with ultrasound, but hopefully they're going to get there. The CMS content for non-traumatic shoulder pain imaging was updated in June of 2021, and it's in our liner notes, 2view.fireside.fm. Again, the number two. They looked to the American College of Radiology as their steward on this one. They began reminding us, hey, look, shoulder pain is common, about 7% of the U.S. population. They include that radiographs are indicated as part of the initial work of shoder pain. So, okay, go ahead and get it. CMS says oh, it's okay. Advanced imaging studies should only be utilized when the diagnosis remains unclear. They go on to say that in recent years, there's been growing concern regarding the overuse of imaging services, as we all know. In fact, one report estimates that 20 to 50 percent of diagnostic imaging studies fail to provide information that provides the diagnosis or treatment of the patient. And that's, you know, what all these choosing wisely campaigns are all about. You know, why are we providing all this care that's ultimately of low or no value? You know, it doesn't really care if it's not providing any sort of value. At this point, if you want to get an x-ray, I think it's fine. Consider the ultimate plan of care for this patient, what will serve them best and serve their wallet the best as well. Yep. So, Mike, I'm just kind of going to skip to the end here. I'm going to get to the meat of the matter here. It really d comes down to money for CMS. We know that. But it also does come down to, like, what are we doing best for our patients? So, you know, looking back at the cost data uh, regarding musculoskeletal imaging back in 2009 when they were looking at some of these reports, CT and MRI accounted for 95% of Medicare allowed charges for all extremity imaging. Only 5% was for ultrasound, Oof. okay? Which is a cost-effective way to look at some of these issues. Also avoiding radiation exposure. So there's a great article by Parker et al. Uh, that talks about the substitution of musculoskeletal ultrasound for musculoskeletal MRI when appropriate and would lead to projected savings uh, to Medicare of more than $6.9 billion. $6.9 billion. So bottom line, folks, I'll say it once, I'll say it again, ultrasound has become more popular over time uh, due to accuracy, efficacy, portability, lower cost. It looks cute. The new federal programs that further underscore the value of ultrasound 
as a low-cost effective alternative for using a di and diagnosing shoulder pain with it and other musculoskeletal conditions. It's a win-win. Get on it. I love it. Let's go to some professional topics here, okay? So let's talk about PA recertification and how there's something new coming up the pike here, all right? So just a refresher for people that don't know, you know, nurse practitioners maybe listening to this here, or maybe you're a junior PA, haven't yet hit your 10th year of practice here. Traditionally, when you're about to recertify as a PA, you take a four-hour test, 240 questions, 60 questions for blocks. Um, and, you know, it's a, a big stress-inducing, high-stakes exam that a lot of PAs are uncomfortable preparing for and often do so at kind of great cost, great time, great stress to them while they are dealing with everything else going on in their professional and personal lives. Well, in 2019 and 2020, the NCCPA, and so this is the kind of body that deals with the certification and recertification of PAs, they ran about 18,000 PAs through this pilot program where it was an at-home test. You sat at home and took, you know, multiple choice questions, and then you got immediate feedback after every question. Yes, correct, or no, wrong, and here is more information about this question. So that sounds like pretty cool, honestly, right? Sounds like kind of a CME you might do, okay? Over 98% of PAs finished that entire two-year process, and almost that many of them passed as well. Throughout that process, PAs provided feedback through, you know, focus groups, quarterly surveys, as you do. So with all that data, the NCCPA has now released this upcoming PANRI-LA. Okay, so I think it stands for Longitudinal Assessment. Sorry, everyone who's yelling at their phones right now if it means something else. Okay, so what's the deal with this PANRI-LA? Every quarter, you get 25 online questions that you can take anywhere, anytime, on any device. You get five minutes per question. It's an open book test as well. All right. Before you even open the question, you kind of get a um, heads up on what section of medicine this question is going to be assessing. And you can go ahead and open that question or kind of like push it off, honestly, to the next quarter. That's really interesting. Um, you're going to get immediate feedback on whether you got it right or wrong. And they can give you references and a rationale as far as why it was right or wrong. You'll have three years for this new process, so 12 quarters, 12 seasons, so to speak. During this three-year process, you can do eight quarters and skip up to four quarters. That's super flexible, right? You, you, know, you might have a bad three months there. You might want to go on vacation or just personal tragedy happens. It doesn't totally kind of bone you out of this process here, so very flexible. Right. There's benefits for getting started right away, according to the NCCPA. If you are on the ball, you can bang out all eight quarters, be done in two years. If you pass at that point, you're done and you're finished a good year out from your research date. So that's kind of nice. Okay. And if you don't pass, then you have time to improve your score before the end of the three-year process. All right. So when do you do this? If it sounds interesting to you overtaking a you know one-time traditional pannery that's kind of like a more high-pressure thing here, when do you start? In year six of your recertification cycle for the questions to be administered in years seven through nine. So if you just spitballing it here, if you're like me, and you, let's say this, if you graduate in 2020, right, that means in 2026, 
you'd start applying for this if it's still around by then. Hopefully it is. And then you'd be doing, you know, uh, questions over 2027 to 2029 if the world has not ended by then. Okay, and uh, you know, non-zero chance of that. But uh, you know, just to think in positive, you know, and and as noted here, you'll get some resources about um, what to do there with each question, whether you got it right or wrong or not. So I love this option. I love the option of uh, being a more of a educational process of recertification, lower stakes, flexible, can do it while sitting, uh, you know, in your easy chair on your patio or in the bathtub. Just don't drop your tablet in the bathtub here. Sounds like a good thing. I don't know. What do you think about this? Well, Mike, I got to tell you, before I give you my spiel on the NP research, uh, you guys sound really organized. I like this. (laughs) Uh, I'm actually surprised. It sounds really cool. It sounds like someone on this board uh, is really taking this seriously and has a, a thoughtful approach to it. I like it. I think a research exam is good. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. About that. All right. And that's, I'd say it's a controversial topic between not just PAs, but also NPs as well. So kudos for you for sticking your neck out like that. Okay. Um, so if you are due to certify in 2024, 2025, 2026, the application period will be open later on this year um, and will close in December 2022. So if you're due to recertify in the next couple of years, keep an eye out for this. So, you know, Martha, you kind of said your spiel here. Should people have to recertify? You kind of said, yeah, you think that a recertification is a good thing. I'm going to be the devil's advocate here and say, well, look, we're all mature adults here. Shouldn't we able just to be doing you know, continuing medical education? Shouldn't we just do CEs for nurse practitioners here? Shouldn't that be enough? Can't we be relied upon to know where we practice medicine and to pick CME that is appropriate to our practice? Because the knock on the pannery is that like, look, I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon. Why should I need to know about uh, toe anatomy, you know, or uh, the lungs or things like that, right? Or rheumatology. I, I'm a very specialized PA, you know. Hmm. Uh, and so everybody I, I, needs to know about the lungs. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> lungs and heart. I'm gonna look. I'm going out on a limb. Lungs and heart, super important organs. I'm just gonna say it. Okay, I'm not gonna back down from that either. Okay, Mike. So essentially, I think for nurse practitioners and how we recertify is a little bit different from. PAs, we have a lot of different groups and a lot of different boards, and some people can find that confusing. Just a couple to point out, there's the AANP, there is the ANCC, there are a couple of different certifying base board exams that we take in regards to our specialty, and then when we go to renew, we might choose a CME activity, we might use teaching hours, we might use precepting hours, those kinds of things. If you're recertifying through the PNCB for the PMP, for example, um, you know, there's a lot of specialized pediatric education that we have to do, and that includes pharmacology. And a lot of these uh, certifying boards, they're, they're trying to accomplish the same thing. There's just a lot of them. And now there's, you know, still that additional certifying board that gives you an additional degree, excuse me, not degree, but certification in emergency uh, medicine and nursing, and that is AAENP's emergency exam. Um, You know, ASAP has worked closely with them over the years. I think a lot of the recertification for NPs can be confusing. Um, And then it's also confusing to the public and to doctors, and I can understand that. I think even... 
with a lot of experience in emergency medicine nursing over the years, it really is something we need to find a long-term solution to. But for right now, this is what we're focusing on, these individual recertification programs online and our audits. And that's really all I'm going to say about that for now. Yeah, it does feel pretty splintered as an outsider uh, looking in. Um, and it's hard to know exactly what each certification means, but 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 no research test is what I'm hearing. Okay, that's right. That's right. All right. Um, I know every year there's a discussion online about you know should we even have an NCCPA? Should we even have some sort of recertification test? Um, can't we just do CME? Like I'm I'm this specialized kind of PA, very specialized. None of the CME um, applies to me. None of the, or I'm sorry, none of the the stuff on the PANRI applies to me. It doesn't show that I'm a good clinician, you know. And and I can totally appreciate that that viewpoint here because like I'll tell you what, I don't really like dealing with like tweaking blood pressure numbers or, or LDLs and HDLs. That's why I'm in emergency medicine. So I don't really need to know that much about those medications beyond, you know, the part I need to know for the emergency department. Okay. But but to those folks who, you know, say that like, hey, all we need is CME, well then you guys are probably the ones who can be relied upon to get the right CME that is appropriate for your clinical practice and is appropriate in depth and is really going to advance your practice. But I swear every December, I know when to start my Christmas shopping. And it's when I start seeing posts online for PAs asking about what is the fastest, cheapest CME that I can get because I need to recertify. And, uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of don't put something on social media that you wouldn't mind getting blown up to poster size and carrying around with you all day long. Okay. And so would you like to see your clinician hanging with a poster that says, I needed fast and cheap CME last year, and that's how I improved my education? Um, I have real concerns about a CME only model um, because I think there are certain people that take advantage of that and do not pick the right CME to improve their clinical practice. I'm already hearing people yelling at the podcast saying, well, look, money, look, time, look, I'm a busy person. I have family and I get all those things. But we have a sacred calling as clinicians and people put their lives in our hands. And that bears some degree of responsibility on our part. And lastly, this, you know, general medicine, that's our stock and trade as PAs. We are pluripotent. We can be little stem cells and float into different specialties. We are have this strong general medicine backing that allows us to be good in emergency medicine, out of the gate, good in dermatology, out of the gate, and to switch practices wherever we want to go. If that's what we want to hang our hats on as PAs, and I'm not saying we should necessarily, but if that's what we want to go to, as that's our strength as a PA, I don't see a problem with demonstrating every 10 years, whether it's through this longitudinal assessment or through a test that says, yes, I am up to date on how practice has changed over the past 10 years because it it moves fast. Well, like I said, I could potentially say a lot more things about the MPs right now. I'm going to save that for a little rant for next week because I I actually uh, don't want to compete with the wonderful things you actually said about PAs that... That's great. I, I do believe that that you should definitely have a commitment to your profession and, and do things of value. Don't waste your time because you wouldn't do that in other areas of your life, right? And it requires sacrifice. Like that's right. like I'm sorry, that's the that's the 
job we got into is it requires some degree of sacrifice. And it should not be, you know, overly onerous. It shouldn't be overly costly. But we should have that commitment to our patients to to give a little bit, a reasonable amount here. And that includes picking CME that is not necessarily fast or cheap. All right. So, like I said um, in the past, fast and cheap usually means diarrhea. So. Um, okay. So listen, we're going to get to our last segment now. It's our case study on altered mental status and the invasion of the death cap. (laughs) All right. Ah, yes. A brief introduction to mushrooms, a specific type of mushroom before we get started. Amanita phylloides, commonly called the death cap, is a strikingly beautiful mushroom. And it's one of the number one causes of fatal mushroom poisonings worldwide. It was originally found in Europe, and it's proved to be highly adaptable to all new lands and now occur all over the world from Australia to South America. And now they have found their liking even in my home state now of California, right in my backyard. (laughs) So Amanita phylloides are believed to have first arrived to California way back in 1938 and they've kind of just made their spreading rounds across all areas of the united states so what i would like to do uh, before giving you a little review of the herbage here or the herbaria is sort of ask you a couple questions to think to yourself when was the last time i had a patient that had a fatal overdose in general what was it and if it was mushroom related why was it mushroom related And I think that question is going to be very important to you when you're trying to go through this case with me, Mike, because you're asking yourself the same question about altered mental status. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So this Amanita phylloides, when it first came here, basically it was such an attractive looking mushroom that people wanted it actually in their gardens. And people were purposely planting it there because it looked cute. It looked cool. And then animals, their dogs were eating it. Their cats were eating it. Oh, no. They accidentally would ingest these. Um, And now death caps have been reported documenting growing all over in Marin County and uh, in the city, in Mendocino County, and expanding now into all these different tree hosts that they live on. So, in short... This discussion that we're going to talk about is about people who use hallucinogens. Um, They'll often do odd things. And that sometimes means not knowing what is real or, or not real. So we're going to talk about this case, and I'm going to get this PowerPoint fired up. And for those of you that are listening and not watching, don't worry. You'll still be able to follow the case. But if you are watching on YouTube... This is going to be an, an interesting uh, sort of play-by-play of how we worked up an altered mental status in a patient with a suspected overdose. Okay, so we're going to jump right into this case. And I called this case a beautiful day in the park turns bad because that's pretty much directly what happened. It's pretty straightforward here, people. So for those of you that are following this particular PowerPoint only via audio. It's fine. I'm going to explain to you what we're looking at on the screen. But essentially, I want you to visualize in your brain a beautiful day in Dolores Park in San Francisco. Everybody's out hanging around. You can see the chocolate guys here coming around and giving people chocolate. There's lots of strange and interesting people that go around the park offering to sell you things from drugs to chocolate to ramen to ice cream um, to puppies. So there are a lot of things in the park that people 
can purchase. Um, you're not always sure what you're going to get. And really, the objectives of this case is to really think about altered mental status, but then also consider some of these more bizarre causes of altered mental status, not just the head bleeds, not just the trauma, not just a cardiac arrest, not just strokes, things like that. Really, what else could be going on? Do we always figure it out? No. So it's 4 p.m. on your shift. You get a call from the EMS that they're bringing in a 25-year-old female with complaints of altered mental status. She was found down in the park after eating lunch with her friends, and the patient was having an active seizure in the ambulance. Valium, 5 milligrams, had been given IV, and her vital signs were the following, 160 over 90, heart rate 135, respirations limited, temperature 99, pulse, ox was 96% on room air, and oxygen was being applied. And I have a picture of a woman here on a bench that essentially is kind of asking you, Mike, what's on your differential with that limited information? That's a hard one. I mean, this could be so many things. So uh, rightly or wrongly, in an undifferentiated young patient, I'm thinking some sort of social issue like, you know, alcohol or recreational drugs. Um, But they could have just blown a fuse as far as if they're having an active seizure, perhaps they have some sort of undiagnosed seizure disorder. They're either off of their meds or just never been put on meds in the first place. This is their first one they've ever had here. Um, Who knows if they were like horsing around. Is this like trauma that I'm just not seeing the trauma because of her long flowing black hair? Is that hiding a hematoma in the back of her head? So lots of possibilities for this undifferentiated person who is tackling along pretty fast but holding their stats pretty good. Yeah, and I think the theme that we've kind of carried into today in the podcast and in our other segments that we do for for the podcast is coming up with a good plan to work up these patients, not just because that's how we learned it in school, but because we integrate some guidelines, experience, and then put it all together to not miss any of the details if possible. So what I kind of did was already answer this question for you. I kind of came up with some CNS causes, metabolic causes, some pharmacological or toxicology causes, infectious, and then these other things. So without going into full detail of each one of those categories, essentially, yes, there could be a CNS pathology here. You could go on for days from tumors to hemorrhage to hypertensive encephalopathy, right? You could have an, you could even have an infarct in a young kid like this, right? So, um, metabolic, we're thinking all the hypos or hyperglycemias, calcemias, um, kalemia, all of those, even thinking about uh, hypovolemia, hypercarbia, hypoxemia. Now, of course, farm tox, yes, all the things you think about, sedatives, opiates, sleep aids, anticholinergics, alcohol, uh, I won't say illicit drugs, but drugs that your mother mother told you not to do. Um, (laughs) infectious meningitis encephalitis well her friend said she was doing you know pretty okay before all this so if it's infection i would be you know surprised based on the initial history um that she was picked up with her friends and she was behaving normally and then had a seizure okay so and then of course our other column which we forget about we forget about things like shock all the different types of shock uh did she get stung by a bee and she's really allergic and what's going on does she have a rash or anything else Um, And then, of course, psychiatric issues and delirium. So the patient gets to you. You know, what do you do? You do your standard. Okay, let's do our, let's figure out what's going on with this patient. Get them on the monitor. We check the airway. We check the breathing. 
we check the circulation. And without going into full detail about what we're doing on our initial workup and exam, we're already thinking to ourselves, are these things okay? And if they are okay, we can move on to disability exposure and check in the blood sugar. Now, if you take away anything today from our brief discussion about this case, is simply that checking the blood sugar is a immediate go-to. Don't forget to do it and know that number. If someone hasn't communicated to you that number, ask again, okay? And then, of course, exposing these patients, fully undressing them, like you said, looking underneath the hair, feeling around the neck, seeing, paying attention to anything else that's going on on that body is super important. So, you know, you stabilize this patient, Mike, all right? Let's say you've checked the ABCs, you've done the cardiac monitoring, you've done the glucose, you've got an IV access, you're looking for signs of trauma. What might be a drug that you want to give this patient if you're thinking tox? <laughs> right, it's right there, right? So naloxone is not a bad way to go. Right, and then, of course, look, we've been talking about ultrasound all day. You might want to throw the ultrasound on and take a look. So you've already got kind of a systematic approach to the patient with altered mental status. And quite frankly, this is your usual go-to systematic approach for most patients that you're seeing in the emergency department. It's a useful review. I think it's good to break these things down once in a while and really think to yourself, why am I doing these things? And where is it going to get me? To what end? So any medical conditions can manifest uh, as acute mental status uh, and could decompensate a patient. I think some of the key things that we forget about with altered mental status are the typical um, global pictures. We kind of get, we anchor our diagnosis on, this is a kid and this is drugs, like I'm going to search for that drug. But you know what? Maybe this is a type 1 diabetic. Maybe this patient um, is, uh, has some endocrine disease. Maybe this patient only has, um, you know, one kidney and they're in renal failure. Maybe this is a cancer patient. Maybe this was their one day out in the park where they were sort of just hanging out. Maybe they escaped from the loony bin and they're totally like psychiatric off their meds and, you know, they have some kind of underlying issue. So don't just immediately, Mike, I'm sorry you said kid, drugs, alcohol, check in for that, you know. How do you know this kid doesn't have one of these problems but, you know. Spoiler alert, we know it's about mushrooms. <laughs> so anyway, we go on sort of to do the physical exam. We glean more information. We look at the patient from all ends, and then we decide uh, what we're going to do. Basically, what do you expect to find on this post-ictal patient that you suspect drug use? Well, I'm going to look at things like pupils. I'm going to look at things like uh, skin tone. Is it cool, clammy? Is it sweaty? Patient's got a high heart rate, so like I know certain toxidromes can involve tachycardia in the absence of like some sort of hypoxemia. Like they were 96% on room air. I'm not sure why they put O's on this patient, but okay, that's fine. I'd probably take the O's off if they're satting that well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, other things to look for as far as if we're talking about tox stuff, uh, I'm going to look at extremities, look for signs of things like skin popping or IV drug use, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's good enough ones. Yeah. yeah that's that's good that's good so yes you're looking at cardiovascular abdominal gi and you want to do a rectal exam on this patient i'll tell you i found more body packing from rectal exams and acute uh altered mental status patients than you 
would uh, believe. We talked about this on our previous podcast. People put things up there. People have things explode. I've seen uh, body packing and body stuffing on imaging. I mean, it's it's out there. Um, maybe we're just not looking hard enough, but maybe I'm also obsessed with it. I don't know. So, um, you know, we're looking at the skin, musculoskeletal. So basically, this is what the patient looked like, Mike. She, she had a, a GCS of 14. She looked uncomfortable. She was mumbling. She was seizing. Great. Uh, no signs of trauma. Okay. Uh, but she did have incontinence of urine and her blood glucose was 120. Yippee. Okay. But then she has another seizure. So of course we could break this down about how we're treating seizures. What lab testing would we get? And other diagnostic tests would we get? You know, I, I just want to remind you to kind of just think in this pattern. Um, I'm going to give you a bit of a cheat sheet to get to the end here of what happened with her. We ended up doing a bunch of tests. What might you think would be some good tests for her? Right, so you've kind of got them on screen right now. So you're basically on a CVCCMP. I'm going to have someone do a catheterized urine sample if she can't just go ahead and spontaneously void here. And that way we can get the, the talk screen, which I know is like not fully telling the story necessarily, but it's just good information to have if she's totally clean of drugs. So we can look elsewhere if she has some that test positive. That's something to consider but not anchor on. All right. Alcohol you mentioned. Sure, this could be a thyroid issue. Um, LFTs will roll up into your CMP pregnancy. Like, could she have some sort of ruptured ectopic where she went into some sort of shock? And mm -hmm. we're just not looking down there. I mean, you saw I talked about incontinence, so we looked down there, didn't see blood, don't need to have big vaginal bleeding necessarily. They could bleed into the belly. Um, coags could further, you know, bone somebody if they're having some sort of bleeding somewhere. Um, other labs I want to do on somebody like this, I'd probably throw an ammonia in there in case they have like some sort of a hepatic encephalopathy. Um, let's see here. And uh, that's, I'm sure there's others I'm blanking out right now, but that's kind of a good start for Yeah, for that's AMS. great. I think that's great. So I'm just going to tell you, we're going to, we're going to get to the end here. The results was that she ended up getting um, a head CT, no acute findings. Her blood work, she had a white blood cell count of 18. Her tox was pending, but we weren't waiting for it. Mm -hmm. um, we were considering interventions um, for any overdose, but she was, like I said, her GCS was 14. She was maintaining. She had a CMP that was normal, otherwise uh, with kind of an early acidosis. TSH normal, urine nor normal, prolonged PTINR. Uh, chest x-ray normal, and the EKG was just sinus tack with a... Uh, no ST changes, no delta wave. Okay. So she kind of gets better. She got a little bit better, but she kept hallucinating. She answered some questions and then her friends were calming her down as she was trying to get out of bed. And what was the prognosis? Well, this is what happened to this young lady. Friends state that she ate some ramen for lunch from Coco's. Love that place, by the way. No other real issues or concerns. They state that she met a friend at the park that looked like Super Mario. And that the patient spent some time talking to him. He had a cooler and he said how great vaccines were. And she was really getting on board with him. So then her friends left. They went to go get some ice cream. And when they came back, she was all nutty and had a seizure. Again, creepy people in Dolores Park. They're <laughs> everywhere. Okay. They this guy likes to put his vaccination status on his uh, cooler. So there's people that go around and they want to sell stuff to you. They now put their vaccination card to prove, you know, that they're vaccinated. So you'll talk to them and buy from them, oh including, the, including the drug dealers. But you probably didn't know. Um, 
is that there could be some other tests that are still waiting to come back. And, and I'll tell you what those are. She was positive for cocaine. She was positive for benzodiazepines. Was that because she got some Valium? We don't know. She was positive for marijuana. She was negative for PCP. And right, patients who are on PCP don't act like this. They're all nutty and they, they are able to take on 10 people at a time. She was also negative for opiates. So her LFTs, though, through the roof. Through the roof. So at the time, we weren't thinking mushrooms, right? I let you guys all cheat and told you about mushrooms at the beginning. But her LFTs were through the roof. And in her bag, what did you find? S- some psychedelic psilocybin. Psilocybin. She had some books on psilocybin in her backpack as well. She was really, really cultivating the safe use of these things. She wanted to be on board. So without getting into too much detail about psilocybin and the pros and cons of that, what happened was is that there was a large area of mushrooms in the park and she ended up ingesting additional mushrooms on her psychedelic trip that were the uh, death cap. And what happened to her, um, I'm just going to skip some of this information about psilocybin because I actually... Uh, may talk about that on a future future podcast, but essentially it's 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 not the psilocybin that killed her. Um, she ended up going to the ICU. She got intubated. She continued to hallucinate. She did get acetylcysteine. Tox was involved. We got a great consult from them. They were concerned about Amanita phylloides as her her issue that put her into full minute liver failure. Her LFTs kept going up, not improving. She was added to the emergent liver transplant list and she ended up waiting for a liver and died due to her excess uh, uh, use of mushrooms, most likely the cause, Amanita phylloides. Mm. Um, And 1.2 ounces or just 30 grams of this mushroom can kill a human can cause all these issues, including fulminant liver failure. Most people die within 12 to 24 hours. Most importantly, when you have a mushroom overdose, in general, talking to tox is great. Even talking to tox early, they love calls. You know, I have a young female. Everything's looking negative. I'm waiting on the tox result. I'm worried it could be blah, right? They want to know. They want to follow that patient. They want to see what happens. You can consider treatment for um, mushroom overdoses or poisoning. Some treatments are interesting that look at penicillin, vitamin C, dialysis, of course, transplant, charcoal, and other forms of treatment. But the big question here is, do we have enough signs in Dolores Park that says, don't eat the mushrooms, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and then, you know, some questions about psilocybin. Can it be safe? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure about the jury on psilocybin right now. It's certainly becoming more and more popular and sending people to the ER for uh, uh, paranoia and hallucinating. But the bottom line from all of this, anchoring your diagnosis, bad deal, right? That's the key that I kind of wanted to put here. Could be anything. And Mike, you knew the answer at the beginning and you were still anchored on it. I should have uh, tricked you. I should have tricked you because I should have made it go some other way. But in the end, um, mushrooms are very dangerous and concerning. And what makes it hard with the death cap is it looks like other edible mushrooms, you know? So it's not like, unless you're a real skilled practitioner out there of, of shroomology, that's the technical word, um, you know, would be very hesitant on just eating random shrooms out there because they look like 
other things that are uh, non-toxic or even uh, healthy. You know, there's these uh, Caesar's mushroom, the straw mushroom. They look really close to the death cap. And I looked, by the way, while you were talking, they're in Texas as well. So they are not just in California. They're all over the place here. Mm -hmm. And um, lethal, straight up lethal. That sucks. I feel so bad for that patient. Yeah, too bad. It's time for our Something Sweet segment. I'm going to go into a brief talk about Evusheld. So we didn't talk about Evusheld on our last COVID therapeutics chat, but short story is this. It's two IM injections given simultaneously for people who are known to be moderately or severely at risk for uh, severe COVID due to being immunocompromised. Okay, um, this is a harder one to find because you can't just pop these pills. You have to get these IM injections. Um, thankfully, there is a COVID therapeutics locator that I've put in the show notes to view.fireside.fm, as well as the link to the EUA about Evusheld. And the reason I put that there and highlighting today is because there was a relatively recent update on how to give Evusheld you're actually doubling the dose here that was initially recommended. So if you happen to be someone who gave Evusheld or was involved in someone receiving Evusheld early on in the past month or two, the dose has been recommended to be doubled. Um, these, again, are patients who are um, higher risk of or, or moderately high immunocompromise who, in, uh, who can't get the vaccine for whatever reason or the vaccine may not work for them. It is not meant as a substitute for the vaccine. It's still under EUA. There's nowhere near as much data about Evusheld as there is about the vaccines out there. It is just one more tool in our arsenal for our immunocompromised patients who may come to the ED and maybe you test them and they go, uh, you go, well, hey, not COVID, but they share with you, boy, I'm so scared about getting COVID. I've got an organ transplant or I'm on chronic high dose steroids or I have cancer or on chemo. What do I do? to protect myself from COVID. Evusheld is a possible one there. So go ahead and familiarize yourself with the indications for Evusheld. Look at the EUA on our show notes and also understand where you can help your patients find it, which is one of the hardest things of all. I'm seeing clinicians on you know, Twitter. These are senior experienced clinicians who are having a hard time in finding Evusheld. I don't know if they know about this therapeutic Google style map. So use that hot link that to your phone so you can um, very easily find this for their patients here. Martha, what's your something sweet? Well, I'd like to say that I want to talk about book club. And the first rule of medical book club is that you talk about medical book club. Um, I used to be in a cool, hot medical book club where we discussed medical texts with uh, both educational and personal essay novels, uh, some from personal work-related clinical experiences, uh, educational text and some essays, the one and not papers. Okay. I'm not talking about papers. This isn't a paper club. It's a book club. The one book we started reading was called brother, sisters, sibling estrangement and the road to reconciliation. This book is by someone named Fern Schumer Chapman. It's a really warm, empathetic guide to understanding coping and, and healing from the unique pain of sibling estrangement. So she starts off by talking about her story and then the literature and data behind sibling estrangement, so many people experience this on different levels. She says, whenever I tell people that I am working on a book about sibling estrangement, they sit up a little straighter and lean in as if I've tapped into a dark secret. And there's so many things about medicine, emergency medicine and nursing that really feel like dark secrets that you're tapping into. So much trauma. Um, but 
The story goes on that for the better part of 40 years, this woman had no relationship with her only brother, despite many attempts at reconciliation and reconnection. She had a lot of grief, a lot of shame. She made a lot of maybe bad decisions based on those feelings. She was isolated and she found there was a profound stigma surrounding estrangement and very little statistical and psychological research that was out there. So she decided to conduct her own research, interviewing psychologists, estranged siblings. She did this great survey. I looked it up as well as recording the extraordinary story of her, her own rift with her brother and subsequent reconciliation in this rare book. Okay. Rare book based on science research and evidence while also integrating a personal well-told story. Brilliant. She marries the epidemic, as the literature calls it, of sibling estrangement into her own personal story of growth and humility. And it's it's really hard to find a book that can intertwine topics like this with both research and medicine and personal stories. If you are one in four of the people out there that have some type of sibling estrangement on some level, I would read this book. I loved it. It helped me understand grief, loss, and hope. It helped me understand a lot about the mental health decisions, uh, excuse me, the mental health issues that people have and the decisions they make. I bring us back to planning your will and your, um, you know, power of attorney and such. I mean, some people don't have their sibling as that person, you know. So I love this book, Mike, and that is my something sweet for this month. This is different than having just strange siblings, right? That's a different book, I think. No. It's a different book. And and again, the, the literature uh, uh, on this is, is very, very interesting. Or should I say, we need more of it. So let's let's wrap up book club today by saying if anybody wants to join, send us an email. That email is, Mike, you want to tell everybody? TwoViewCast at gmail.com. That's the number, TwoViewCast at gmail.com. Love to see Boom. emails. Love to get your trivia answers segue right there into our trivia question here. So um, we are going to go over our last shroom-related trivia question and then go right into our new one here. What do they win for Trivia Martha? As always, as often, I'd say, we're giving away a 20% discount off of our July boot camp course, and you get lunch with the faculty. Lunch is on Rick. He doesn't know that yet, but uh, <laughs> Dr. Ricardo will pay for your lunch, okay? So be coming with a uh, appetite for steak or seafood here. Win Chipotle. this trivia answer. Or ch- <laughs> yeah, yeah, lunch is usually fast, okay? If, if, you, yeah. if you win two in a row, you get dinner with us, but it's this is just lunch. It's shots of tequila, actually. That's it. Oh, my. He doesn't think the afternoon go a little bit faster that's for sure okay well look win this contest you can come join us in vegas with that big hunk of registration knocked off and share your er experiences with us over a good meal so martha go ahead and talk about our last months since you're doing the shrooms talk here what our question and answer was from last month there's a famous video game that involves taking mushrooms to grow bigger in size what is the name of this video game and what real life psychoactive mushroom that can cause users to perceive changes in size of things around them um, do the red and white spotted mushrooms look like? And the answer was Super Mario Brothers. Hey. And do you want to name the mushroom? Yeah, it's Amanita muscaria. And the uh, colloquial term for that is a fly agaric or fly Amanita mushroom. Boom. Right. You have the winner for us? Yeah, Brigitte Murphy, thank you so much. She's actually the lead moderator of the great MP group called MP Newbies. It has over 20,000 members. Such a cool discussion forum for the old and the new. And we can't wait to see you in July, girl. So 
Excited to see you. Let's do it. Yeah, shout out to NP Newbies. Okay, great Facebook group. This week's question, this month's question is a good one. Here it is. In what year and by whom, there's always two parts to our trivia, in what year and by whom was the first handheld ultrasound developed in the United States? Stay tuned to our next podcast for that answer. All right, Mike, that's it for this week. That's it. There's no more to say today. <laughs> There's a few things to say. We can say a few more things. All right. So if you want more information about us and our faculty, visit our website featuring our upcoming courses at www.ccme.org and consider coming to see us in July or August. We hope you have your vaccines. We hope that uh, things are looking brighter and better in the future here. Our next boot camp in July, uh, our advanced camp in August. You can check out our other courses, heart course, EKG course, acute care series courses, and much more at ccme.org and there's even some more of those emergency medicine and acute care courses coming up throughout the country you know like if you guys have already done like the original boot camp the advanced boot camp and you're like well what else is there for me to get from ccme dude this emergency medicine and acute care course is for you it's held in cool places all around the country you know as far east as new orleans and south carolina north carolina as far west as hawaii you know so find a cool place and come hang out with us that's the emergency medicine and acute care course that's also at www.ccme.org yeah and mike let me tell you a couple yeah what's coming up there's an acute care series course in april in las vegas there's one in new orleans in april as well uh hilton head in may san diego in june san francisco in june come come stay with me uh new york new york june as well as vancouver in july and my favorite i shouted that key west sorry about that dave's probably gonna be a little loud but key west in november this year that's awesome gosh i love i don't know what i'd rather have key lime pie in november or beignets in april in new orleans hard pick (laughs) I'll just do both. Okay. <laughs> well, folks, thanks for listening to this episode of The Two View. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's always the number two view emergency, and it will come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so other clinicians can get some Two View goodness like you did today. If you like YouTube, I think you should especially like YouTube for this month because Martha had a great presentation that is helped by the pictures you're going to see there. If you want to see those pictures and the video blog, my flannel is pretty fetching as well. Search for the Center for Medical Education. You can catch the video version. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we refer to. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thank you for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today on The Two View. Have a good day and a great shift. I'm going to go find some shrooms. Out. Bye. (laughs) 